This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 511 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 511tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com, and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 511 Tactical, you can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 431 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show, Michael Sugru. Now, Michael is a veteran law enforcement officer and was placed in a position that many people don't really think about. And that position is being forced to take a life in the defense of himself and the people in the house at the time. So we discuss the ripple effect of that. These men and women are placed in position to defend us and sometimes are forced to take a life. And that has a toll of its own. Then we add in the effects of the media, the effects of organizational stress, and you have a recipe for disaster. 
And in Michael's case, that came to the point of trying to take his own life. So before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment to go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Michael Sugru. Enjoy. So, Michael, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's my honor. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this morning? So I live close to the Napa Valley. I'm about 15 minutes from there. So in the San Francisco Bay Area in Northern California. Brilliant. Well, I love to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. So I was born and raised in Oakland and I lived there for several years and I ended up moving all over the Bay Area. Uh, My parents were actually divorced when I was eight years old. And a couple of years after that, my mother got remarried to my stepfather, who is the one I actually consider to be my father. And he retired as a police lieutenant here in the Bay Area for Richmond Police Department. And I have three brothers, uh, one older and two younger. Brilliant. Now, with uh, as, as you, I'm sure you're aware, with the whole mental element, the mental health element, especially with Save a Warrior, Jake was one of the first people that kind of opened my eyes to this, the childhood trauma is definitely one of the factors that people don't think about that what we bring into our profession. So with the journey you've been on now, before we kind of progress chronologically, when you look back, did did the divorce have a big impact on you or were there any other elements that you would contribute or consider as trauma that you brought into the profession? You know, the divorce, I think, definitely did have some impact on me. I mean, I, I vividly remember the day I found out and I remember being in the car with my father And we had a conversation and to this day, you know, it really does stick with me. And so I do know it had an effect on my life. Um, I don't necessarily consider that actual trauma. Um, But a few years after that divorce, probably around the age when I was 12 or 13, my biological father, he had gotten remarried. He was super successful, um, living in a huge house, very wealthy. And he ended up getting into drugs and alcohol. And I think that's what actually had an effect on me, Um, the fact that he really wasn't very involved in my life. Um, He was pretty absent from most things. Uh, Fortunately, my stepfather, who is my hero, he was there always for me. Um, He actually knew me since the day I was born. And I just idolized him and really looked up to him. And so I'm really grateful for the fact that my stepfather was in my life. Because honestly, I think if he had not been in my life, there's a good chance that I may have turned out differently or maybe I would have chosen a different path. Um, But what I think is ironic that you bring up is that, you know, I went through Save a Warrior this last August and for whatever reason, I don't know if I was just in denial or I just put it so far away that I kind of forgot about my childhood. I kind of forgot about my actual biological father. And it wasn't until... 
about a year and a half ago, he got diagnosed with terminal cancer. And that's what really forced me to look at my relationship with my father. And, and what I found out is, yeah, it did have, absolutely have an effect on me. And, um, and it has affected, I think, relationships that I've been involved in, especially on a personal level. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like like I said, it's something that we just don't think about. We talk about the elephant in the room. I think the mental health elephants are, you know, are sleep deprivation, their organizational stress, which we're definitely going to talk about today, but also childhood trauma. And and I've only been exposed to it by doing this podcast and hearing these these stories of all these men and women, many of whom have, have get, got to a very dark place. And one of the common denominators is some sort of trauma. Now, it could be anything from, you know, a very extreme sexual, you know, physical assault type element all the way through to only child, you know, uh, adopted, you know, some of the areas divorce where some people might look at it and, and belittle it. But when you think about human beings as a species, you know, we grow up in tribes. We're not supposed to have a parent just suddenly walk away and, and leave us, you know, halfway through our childhood. You know, what I what I find that really resonates with that, too, is that, you know, as a veteran, as first responders, we gravitate towards these careers and we seek out oftentimes a new family. And this is what really I found out hit me the hardest was that, you know, my so-called family in law enforcement really wasn't a family. And there came a point where I went through a lot of things and they really turned their back on me. And what I found out is that's that fear of abandonment. And a lot of times, you know, this does stem from childhood issues. And so, you know, here we are, we grow up, we mature, we find these awesome careers and we're fully vested. We have this great family, but then something happens oftentimes at some point in our career and we find out that this so-called family is actually abandoning us. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the problem I see with, with our profession. So I had a uh, PJ who was a officer that was shot on duty and, and basically abandoned by his department pretty much. And, but then conversely, yesterday I went to an event here in Marion County where it's a fundraiser for one of our firefighters, a very young firefighter that took his own life, um, Emilio Rivera. And he, um, yeah, his brother organized this kind of weightlifting event and, and it was all these, you know, men and women that showed up to be a part of that, to show that they care. So having worked for several departments myself, I've seen the best and the worst, literally, in my opinion. I've had that cohesive crew that I worked with a decade prior that were my best men and groomsmen at my wedding. And then I had a you know, department most recently where it was the polar opposite of brotherhood and sisterhood. You know, it was it was backstabbing and, you know, stepping on each other to climb the ladder. So when you get to see it, I become an advocate for the good. You know, I do believe that that exists, but it, it, you have to create an environment for that brother and sisterhood to thrive. And conversely, if the bar isn't set high, if there isn't a nurturing of, you know, camaraderie and, and, uh, enabling people to, to lead their men and women, you know, no micromanaging all these areas, you can create a, a very cohesive, you know, band of brothers and sisters. But if there are those, those cracks, if there are those cancers allowed to be in, it can be so toxic that that becomes a huge mental health element just in itself. It absolutely does. And it, that's what prevents the barrier of people raising their hand and asking for help. You know, if you have that cohesive family that you're talking about, you're going to have that trust. You're going to have that comfort level and you're going to be able to open up but more importantly you're going to really know each other you're going to know your people 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, back to your, your kind of your journey then. So you have this amazing stepfather. He's in law enforcement. When you were a young man, clearly our professions require a certain level of fitness and strength. Were you a sports, uh, you know, young sportsman? And also, did you have that career in mind when you were training when you were young? Absolutely. So I, I've always been involved in sports my entire life. I mean, from a, at a very young age, whether it be Little League or basketball to lettering in several sports in high school, I've always had a focus on fitness. And I always knew that I was going to go into either the military or law enforcement. Um, I really think that the drive started, you know, at a very, very young age with my grandfather. He was a World War II veteran. I was very close to him. We'd often go fishing and spend a lot of time together. And he would talk about his time in the military. Um, but especially with my stepfather, um, I actually became a crime prevention volunteer at the age of eight years old, believe it or not, for the Sausalito Police Department. And that's where I really got the just the itch to go into law enforcement. That's where I saw that camaraderie that you were talking about. I saw the team, I saw the family and it was just, I felt like I was part of something special. And when I got a little bit older in my teen years, I actually was a police explorer for the Richmond police department. So it's fair to say that my entire life I, I've had a plan and it's been focused towards the military and law enforcement. Beautiful. Then, so tell me about your kind of journey into the military. Cause I mean, you have had that law enforcement focus, but what took you to the air force specifically? So I actually was thinking about the Army first, and I actually went through Army officer basic training at Fort Knox, Kentucky, and I completed that. And the goal was to get a scholarship for college. And when it came down to it, um, the Air Force offered me a lot more money than the Army did, and they offered me a full scholarship to college. And so my original plan was to go, I wanted to go in the FBI, and I knew to go into the FBI, I needed a college degree. But I also needed some kind of actual work experience. And I knew that if I served my four years in the military as a security forces officer, which is military police, I could get out and then transition into federal law enforcement. A um, couple things happened, and I ended up staying in longer than the four years. I ended up staying in about six and a half years active duty. And that's because they offered to let me live in Germany for a couple years, which I could not turn down. And um, during that time, I got a lot of exposure to actual federal law enforcement and what it is that they do. And I just realized that local law enforcement was going to be a much better fit for what I wanted to do and for the differences that I wanted to make. So I ended up serving my time, moving back to California. And while I was still in the Air Force, I started applying to several different police departments here in Northern California. Beautiful. Well, staying on, on the military for a moment. So you were, you know, working law enforcement within the Air Force. Um, I know one of the, uh, the areas that you were working in was anti-terrorism. So what were some of the, the unique roles that you played in, you know, in the military sense? You know, were there any stories that kind of, you know, pop out to you as far as your time there? You know, all my assignments were so varied. Um, when I first started out, I was what's called a flight leader, flight commander. Um, I was actually in charge of nuclear security. And so I had people that were deployed out all over Wyoming and Nebraska. And we actually protected the ICBM or the nuclear sites where the missiles actually launch out of the ground. And I remember my actual first assignment, 
I was literally in charge of 60 people. And just thinking about that now straight out of college <clears throat> was quite overwhelming. But, you know, it, it put me on a path where I had to learn very quickly and I had to learn to adapt. Um, after that, I immediately transitioned into more of a true law enforcement side on the base. But we also protected the nuclear weapons storage area. And after that, I did some things in command and control. Um, I actually was in Saudi Arabia. As I said, I was in Germany, came back to California, and I was what's called the chief of security forces for a worldwide deployed unit. And um, I spent some time down in South America, which looking back now was probably some of my fondest memories, just being in the jungles of Colombia and working with the local military there and just the you know, the experiences and the things that I saw and things that I was exposed to. Um, without my military service, I think my worldview and my just knowledge of other people and other cultures would have been a lot smaller. And because of that, I just have a much broader view on on life. Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more being British myself. You know, I think that's one of the, the, the cures for ignorance without a doubt is travel. You know, I mean, and it's not just here, it's everywhere. You know, there's a very blinkered view of other countries. Sometimes that can be a very kind of egotistical view of one's own country. But then when you start traveling and you see different cultures, and you realize that the through lines of all these cultures are the same as yours. It really does bring a lot of those kind of pigeonholes down. It, it does. And that experience is absolutely invaluable. You know, I, you brought up a funny memory, but I remember when I was in my police academy after the military, and we took a, a flight down to Southern California for the Museum of Tolerance. And I remember like 70% of my academy class had literally never been outside California. And there was actually a few that had never been on a plane. And, and I just, I couldn't wrap my mind around that because, you know, I'd seen so much and been so many places that I just didn't think twice about it. But like you said, it just gives you a whole new appreciation for where you're at and what you have. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned South America. Was that to do with the drug trade or was that something completely different? I can't go into too many specific details, but what I can tell you is that, you know, part of the missions that we did was to go to foreign airfields where there wasn't embedded security or self-defense mechanisms in place. And we would go down there and evaluate um, what the needs would be if we had to use those airfields. And that could be for any types of missions, you know, whether it's counter drug um, insurgency or any kind of embassy support missions. Um, but it was, it was mainly to, to assess the airfield capabilities in foreign countries. Brilliant. Well, I want to I want to get back to, to my philosophy on the illicit drug trade and you know, see if uh, you have any interesting perspectives on that with your you know domestic and international but we'll we'll circle around to that in a minute um so then lead me through the transition from the military to law enforcement then so i got out of the military in 04 and immediately went into the police academy um, i actually went to the academy here in the napa valley and that transition was pretty smooth um, like i said being prior military the academy was fairly easy but at the same time, I look back now and just absolutely great memories. I mean, some of my best friends to this day are people that were in my academy class and we formed a, a real friendship, just like you would equate to like basic training or specialized training within the military. I'm just some very good friends there. And so I got hired by the Walnut Creek Police Department, which is just outside San Francisco. 
It's about 30 minutes um, east of San Francisco and started out on patrol. Within about a year and a half, I was actually promoted to a field training officer where I would train the new officers out of the academy, but also lateral officers from different agencies. And, you know, I knew from from the start of my civilian law enforcement career that what I wanted to do was to eventually become an undercover special agent or detective. And in our case, we had a state drug task force, um, which had a countywide task force. And that was my goal. And so when I was on patrol, I focused all my efforts on being as proactive as I could be, doing as many stops and making as many arrests, hopefully focused on drugs and guns. And fortunately, that paid off. A few years later, in 2009, I was actually selected to be undercover on that state drug task force that that I talked about. And my goal was to actually spend four or five years in that assignment. I mean, that literally was my dream. And about two years into that assignment, it absolutely got shattered and everything got taken away from me. It turns out that my boss, who was a California State Department of Justice drug task force commander, he had been actually stealing our evidence and was selling it on the side. And none of us on the task force had any clue this was going on. But And I could go on for hours about how this evolved, but basically um, somebody reported it and they did a wiretap investigation, thank God, because they were listening to all our phones and surveilling us and they realized that we weren't actually involved in this. But he was, and it just decimated the task force. Um, it ended up being permanently disbanded, and that actually had a statewide effect. There used to be, I think, like 53 drug task force in the state, and eventually there was like 17, and now there is no Bureau of Narcotic Enforcement for the state of California, and he's actually spending 14 years in federal prison as we speak. Amazing. Uh, yeah, you know, and I, I just – it's, it's tough to talk about because that literally was my dream and, and that was my focus. And when that happened, it just, I, I kind of lost my center. I lost my purpose. And um, whether you call it a blessing or not, I ended up getting promoted um, probably about a year after that task force got shut down. And then I was a patrol sergeant. And that's when two weeks uh, solo, brand new patrol sergeant, I got involved in a very traumatic incident at work and that incident forever changed my life and and that's why i'm here today talking to you absolutely well let's talk about that december 27th 2012 so it was our friday and it was a graveyard shift uh, we started at 9 30 p.m and we worked till 7 30 in the morning and the shift technically started the day after christmas it was super quiet um, nothing was going on we had an overlapping swing shift team at the time. They went home at about like 1230 or one in the morning. And I remember, um, you know, literally it was just like everybody's just looking forward to the weekend. Nobody's trying to stir anything up. There's no calls coming out. The radio's dead silent. And a little bit after 3 a.m., all of a sudden these alert tones come out on the radio and the dispatcher sounds very panicked. She's screaming and she reports that there is a couple inside a condominium barricaded and there's a subject with a knife. And at that time, I was the ranking officer on duty. There, there was no one else that was on duty. So I was the acting chief of police. 
I had four officers on duty. That was it. And we immediately start driving towards this residence as quickly as we can. I remember I got there first on scene and literally just a matter of a couple minutes. And just as I arrive on scene, the dispatcher starts really screaming, saying there's a struggle, there's a struggle. Then the line drops and she's lost all contact inside. And at that same time, thank God, my partner arrives just on scene behind me. And we just start running. We hear these blood curling screams coming from a distance. And all I can hear is a female's voice. And it sounds like she's being killed or stabbed. It's to this day the worst sound I've ever heard. And we don't know where we're going. It's dark. And we're trying to find this unit. And eventually we get to it and it goes dead silent. It went from these blood curling screams to just dead silence. And we start banging on the door, announcing ourselves, and there's nothing. No sound, no movement. Eventually we see there's this huge window the size of a door that's shattered inward. And we've got more units coming, but we've got to get in there. And so my partner and I, it's just us. We go inside. We clear the downstairs. There's no one there, no signs of a struggle. We get to the bottom of the stairs. We've got our guns out. We're announcing ourselves, yelling. At first, there's nothing. And this seems like eternity, but literally, we're talking seconds. And eventually, this male subject partially comes out. He's sweating profusely. His eyes are wide open. He's just staring straight through us. I mean, it's the best way to describe it is like a zombie. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. He's just staring straight through us. He has no reaction to anything we're saying or anything we're doing. And in his right hand, we can see he has a large butcher knife clenched in his hand. And again, we're yelling at him, drop the knife, drop the knife. And he ends up raising up the knife over his head and he starts coming towards us. And that's when we have to shoot. And he eventually comes to the bottom of the stairs. Um, at this point, there's a couple other officers inside. Two of the officers retreat. I'm literally feet away from this man, and there's my partner. He's on my side, and we're yelling at him. He still has the knife in his hand, and he starts coming back up towards us. And, I mean, there's no there's no nice way to say it, but, you know, we killed him. And um, thank God the couple upstairs was okay. We were able to get to him, and it turns out that he, this, this man was stabbing through the door with his butcher knife, and this couple was literally holding the door with their body, trying to prevent him from coming inside and killing them. You know, thank God they're alive today, but that, that incident forever changed my life. Personally, professionally, it just sent me on a downward spiral. Well, just with the actual incident itself, before we go on to how that was compounded, you know, after, um, I think, you know, it's important. So obviously I researched the call as well. So this young man was, um, you know, not, not a, not a big figure, not a, not a, a man with a lengthy, um, you know, criminal record. He was a Caucasian hairdresser. So, you know, the knee jerk at the moment when you hear an officer involved shooting is, oh, you know, it was probably a white officer killing a black you know, whatever, you know, that's the narrative that we see over and over and over again. But, you know, it's very important, I think, that we we talk about that, that this was, a, you know, your your lives were in danger. and It didn't fit the the narrative that we have at the moment, not even not even close. But the other side of it is, you know, then with there's a knife involved, you hear and I saw in in this article, too. Oh, why didn't you use a taser? 
oh, he was he wasn't that big. Why didn't you just overpower him? And if anyone wants to, you know, challenge that at all, just watch any of the special operations community doing a demonstration with a knife. Anyone who's who's well versed with a knife, and they'll show you the distance they can cover. And you know how I mean, there's, there's a horrendous video I, I saw on the internet a few weeks ago, and you know, within a split second, this small guy just basically dropped this big guy with about two slashes of a knife, and that was it. He was done. He bled out right there on camera. So I don't see, as a non-law enforcement officer, when you're forced, you know, we've all seen it in in, in all our professions that psychosis with a butcher knife in a confined environment that would be an apartment, how you could go for anything other than lethal force in that moment. You know, you just you just brought up so much, but you know, first off, a knife goes straight through a ballistic vest, and most people do not understand that. Ballistic vests can stop handgun rounds. They can't stop rifle rounds, but a butcher knife will go right through a bulletproof vest. I've also seen people who have been stabbed and died and stab wounds are much more lethal than gunshot wounds and people don't realize the distance that you can cover in split seconds and like you said literally one stab of a knife can take you out just like that and in this scenario though we i did advise an officer to have his taser and the officer did have his taser out and he actually did deploy the taser as the subject started coming towards us. But unfortunately, the taser missed. And the tasers are not always effective. I have tased several people, and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But what people don't realize is that oftentimes when you tase somebody, if it doesn't connect and somebody's holding a knife or a gun, they can still slash you repeatedly or shoot you. And, you know, in this, this scenario with this man, as you brought up, this is what makes it so difficult is this man was not some convicted criminal. He wasn't a parolee. He didn't have a huge, long, violent criminal history. He wasn't some violent rapist. This was, for all intents and purposes, a good man. He was working. He had a family. He had friends. He had no contacts with law enforcement. None. This was a normal young, good man up until that night. And to this day, nobody understands why he did what he did. And that's what makes this so difficult that I have to live with. I know there was no other choice. I know that we had to take a life to save lives. I know that. But what people don't understand is I have to live the rest of my life knowing that I took another human life. And that weighs on me every single day. Well, I think that's, again, something that people don't take into account. You know, I mean, there, again, being non-law enforcement, being non-military myself, there are two types, well, three types of incidents out there. There's the hands down, no one's going to argue shooting where, you know, the, the perpetrator was killed and pretty much no one's going to argue it. Then you have the gray areas, which we all know you, f- you factor in what we just talked about. Oh, they had a knife. You had a gun. It wasn't fair. No, go, go talk to someone who actually understands weapons. You'll realize that that's not the case. But then you have the George Floyds, these horrendous thing. And at that moment, you know, he wasn't a threat and he didn't deserve to be killed. So I think that's what's so important when we hear about this is our men and women in uniform, when someone comes at you with a knife, 
if they are, you know, someone with a, a squeaky clean history up to that point, or if they are, you know, um, a checkered past, it's a human being coming at you with a knife at that moment. You don't, you don't get to weigh in their, their past history. Conversely, you know, as we said, let's, I'm sure, you know, your colleague who's now in prison probably did some things outside of just selling drugs that, you know, put, innocent people in prison or in danger or whatever. So we have those anomalies as well that absolutely have disregard for the profession that we work for and put innocent people in danger, pull innocent people over, you know, arrest innocent people, even shoot innocent people. But that's the minority. And it drives me crazy when someone is coming at law enforcement in a car, you know, with a knife, with a gun, and then, you know, people have the audacity to sue. Or it's like, well, what what would you do? If it was your child... That person was coming at with a knife. Would you want to just gamble trying to take him down? Or would you want your child protected? And that's what it comes down to. There's no real discussion to be had. It's not about skin color. It's about at that moment, is the officer fearing for his own life and or the life of the people around them? And they have to make a split second decision. Exactly. And unless you've been in that situation, you cannot fully understand what that means. You know, we're trained to do that. But the fact is also that we haven't discussed is most officers are never involved in a shooting. Most officers never kill anybody. I don't know the exact numbers, but I want to say it's probably 99% of all officers are never involved in a police shooting their entire career. Even my own stepfather, who worked in the most dangerous city in the country in California, Richmond, California, he worked over 30 years. He never shot anybody. It just doesn't happen. But the media makes it sound like every single day, all these officers are getting involved in shootings. And it's not true. In my own agency, there's been less than five shootings in the entire over 100 year history of the department. But people don't understand it. They don't get it. And the fact is, we are human. We are husbands, we're wives, we're brothers, we're sisters, we're parents. And we have to make it home to our own families. You know, we do this job and we leave our house every single day saying goodbye to our loved ones and our families, knowing we may not come back home. We know that. We take that risk. And we do it for other people, complete strangers we don't know. And that's 99.9% of all officers out there. Yes, there's bad apples. And they need to be prosecuted to the fullest. And they need to spend the rest of their life in prison if that's what it takes. But most of us are doing the right things for the right reasons. And yes, we will die and put our lives on the line every single day for complete strangers. Who else will do that? Absolutely. And just, just the, the, the concept when we bring race into it. And, and like I said, the, I've, I've seen firsthand racist firefighters that I've worked with. And, and it, the hypocrisy is ridiculous because they're speaking, you know, in, in a, in a derogatory way towards a different, you know, race or gender or whatever it is. And then the tones go off and then they go and help those exact people they've been talking against. So I think there's a lot of ignorant racism, you know, that's around. But when it comes to like hatred, you know, then 
if you truly dislike someone you know, intensely of a certain culture, you know, ethnicity, whatever, you're not going to become a protector profession in that community. You're going to go and work in some community that's all the same color as you. And you're just going to, you know, going to protect fellow pigmentally challenged people, you know, but to, to think that a law enforcement officer or most law enforcement officers deliberately seek out a profession so they can one day harass or maybe even shoot someone of color is ridiculous. You just join the Klan or the Black Panthers or whatever, you know, any of these terrorist organizations where you get to pursue people of different colors every single day. But the, the, the narrative that's been painted about law enforcement is gut-wrenching because I've been honored to work alongside, you know, men and women in the uniform. And I've seen some turds. We've, we all know them. And, you know, my big thing I talk about on the show as well is, is raising the standards, the hiring practices, the annual fitness tests so that we keep the turds out as much as we can. But over and above that, we have to support our men and women as much as we can, unless we, of course, make a horrendous mistake. And then our agency needs to turn around and say, you fucked up. We're not supporting you. you that was on you. You know, but until then, we need to support our people when they do what they're trained to do. You know, on the flip side of that, I'm going to tell you here, at least in California, and we've got a couple of district attorneys who have completely turned their back on our brothers and sisters in law enforcement. And they are actually prosecuting fully justified uses of force, uses of force where there was no other option, where they absolutely save lives for political reasons. And that's where we're at today is that our officers are out on an island and they don't have support from the people. They don't have support oftentimes from their agencies. And now they don't have support from district attorneys and politicians. And they're being made examples of for political reasons. And like I said earlier, if somebody messes up and they screw up, they do the wrong thing, they need to be held fully accountable, fully accountable and prosecute it to the fullest. But when we start prosecuting officers who are doing the right thing and saving lives, that is going to cost so many lives. Our officers now are scared to act when they should act. And we have to make split-second decisions. And that inaction for even just a split second is going to cost lives. And we need to change it. We need to do something about this. Absolutely. And just, just to, you know, put the shoe on the other foot for a second, I feel the same way about drug prohibition. The fact that we're arresting addicts and putting them in a prison and then they got the three strike, strike rule and you got people that had <laughs> marijuana that are spending the rest of their life in prison. I mean, we, we have so many areas set up where our community, whether it's civilians, whether it's law enforcement, are going to end up in jail and our jails are swelling. So the whole philosophy and principle of just you know, prosecuting everyone that does anything at all is is crazy. And we need to rein back completely to where the criminal justice system is for people that are bad people doing really bad things. And I personally don't think that addiction is a bad thing. It can absolutely lead to some bad things. But again, we've created an environment that sends addicts into the shadows, that sends prostitutes into the shadows, you know? So to me, that there's so many basal societal things that we can change that will create an environment where the streets are so much safer for civilians and law enforcement. You know, you bring up addiction and, and drug use and, you know, I have a different perspective on that today than I did when I was working. I mean, understand that my career was focused on, 
you know, targeting the drug dealers though, and that's different. People that are actually selling the drugs and controlling the drug trade is different from those that are using or addicted. Hundred percent. And and you know, because of my work with West Coast Post Trauma Retreat, even Save a Warrior, I have come to meet a lot of former addicts and alcoholics who are first responders. And I have, I just have a different perspective. You know, we talk about trauma, we talk about exposure to things in life. And oftentimes people that turn to drug use, it's as a result of trauma. And that could be from childhood trauma. It could be, you know, throughout their life it could be from a variety of causes and reasons. And I fully agree with you that we need to treat the source and the root of these addictions, you know, but at the same time to play devil's advocate, you know, many of these addicts have to turn to property crimes in order to fund their drug use. And so there is a balance. I mean, we can't just, you know, say, let's not, you know, let's not legalize anything or legalize everything and let's not enforce this. I mean, we have to be careful on how we tackle this. And it's not a very simple solution. But I do agree with you that we do need to look at addiction differently. And these are people that need help. They need resources and they can get better. They can recover. I've seen it personally and I've seen people turn their lives around. And what's most powerful are these former addicts and alcoholics that have come out the other side and now they're giving back and they're sharing their story and they're helping other people. Absolutely. Well, and the, the, my thing is this, you know, you've got supply and demand, the most basal you know, economic model and I've people listening to this. I harp on, on about this all the time. So I've, please forgive me if you've heard this <laughs> mentioned many, many times. But um, my my family live in Portugal. Part of my family they moved there about twenty years ago, and they decriminalize addiction. I couldn't agree with you more. Smuggling, drug selling, they they still come down with them on them with the full force of the law. What they do with their addicts is when they're detained, they put them into an interview process and they educate them on the resources they have available. So they don't have a criminal record. They don't start, you know, spiraling down when now they can't get hired and, you know, just, just building, stacking the, the odds against them. So they're exposed to the, the, the resources of, of mental health counseling, of addiction counseling, rehab, job creation, all these areas. Um, but what they've really done is they've taken the power away from the criminals, the illicit drug trade, and put it squarely in the hands of the medical community. So they've cut the head off the snake. So as you said, addicts are responsible for so much crime. You know, the the, the smugglers and the dealers are responsible for so much crime. I mean, as a paramedic, a number of people I've put a, a yellow sheet over because of an illicit drug trade, you know, turf war, I've lost count. So to me, when you take away the demand, i.e. the addict, you can't help but affect all those other layers as well, including even the, the violence at the border. Because if Americans aren't, <laughs> aren't absorbing, you know, illicit drugs anymore, and I'm talking about decriminalizing all addiction, not just, you know, piecemealing cannabis or you know, some of the things that we see. But if we take the power away from the criminals, to me, that's going to affect everything. It's going to make it safer for, on the streets for the people that live there, for the officers that serve, and it's going to free up the jails and the, the court system to prosecute the real shitbags of the world. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's not easy. And, you know, a, as a former law enforcement officer, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is like drinking and driving, right? 
I mean, alcohol is legal. Most people use it. Lots of people drive with it. But what are the consequences of that, right? Fatal car accidents, pedestrians hit in the crosswalk. And so there has to be rules. There has to be regulations. There has to be age limits. There has to be, you know, all kinds of of things set in place so that, you know, when people are doing these things, they're doing them responsibly. So, you know, I think the dialogue definitely needs to be open, but I think it needs to be thought out very carefully. And, and there needs to be a lot of different things considered in that discussion. Absolutely. Well, the good thing is, like I said, there are countries that have done it successfully. So we have blueprints to use, you know, and apply our own way. But and I think that the, the, the misunderstanding a lot of people have is like, oh, now you can go buy meth in, you know, Publix. No, they're not saying that. They're just saying that if you're an addict, they're going to bring you into a clinic. So for example, the fentanyl overdoses that we have, well, you can have, you can safe, um, you, know, you can take your fentanyl safely in a clinic overseen by a physician so that you don't die. So you don't touch a police officer and the powder hits their hand and then they die as well. You know what I mean? So they're not, they're not looking to promote addiction. You can't go to the store and buy any of these products. They're just, bringing addicts back into a medical setting so but anyway so that's kind of you know my my whole philosophy of how we we kind of try and plant the seed of doing something different because there's no question the war on drugs is an epic failure i mean you know our prisons are just swelling but back to the um you know the incident we've got a huge tangent <laughs> so coming back to 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 that incident so you had that officer involved shooting that in itself that acute moment must have been traumatic so lead me through the days and months following that you know right after it happened we get sequestered and we're up for over 24 hours uh, eventually you're you know you're brought into the department. You have to strip off your uniform and your gun belt and all your equipment. They're taking photos of you. I mean, literally, you are a suspect. You're a suspect in a homicide. And then you get separated. You have to be interviewed. And that's recorded. And, you know, by the time I got done with all of that, I was just physically exhausted, mentally exhausted. I remember I was not even in a condition to drive home. Luckily, my department had somebody else drive me home. And at the time I was married, I had a very young daughter. She was only two and a half years old. And I just remember walking up to my house and seeing the looks on their face. And I just felt at that moment so numb. I was like detached. I just, I didn't feel present at all. And I just literally wanted to go up to my room and close the door and just sleep it off. Pretend like this was some bad nightmare that didn't happen. And the fact was it was a nightmare that really did happen. And I couldn't get these images out of my head. I couldn't get the fact out of my mind that I almost died. You know, here I am a new father. I had this beautiful young daughter and all I want to do is come home every day and see her. And literally I almost just got my life taken away from me. And yeah, there'd been some close calls before that, but nothing like this, nothing like this. And after that, I just had this constant fear of dying and thoughts of dying. You know, I started isolating. I wasn't being social. I didn't want to talk to anybody. In fact, I couldn't even talk to anybody. You know, we got sued immediately and there was dual investigations going on. We had the district attorney's investigation. We had the internal investigation. And this was about as clean a shoot as you could have. We saved lives. We saved our own lives on top of that, but yet we're under immediate scrutiny. And then you have the media. 
And you had these investigations that drug on. And I, I didn't even want to talk to my wife about it. You know, I didn't want to tell her the fact that I almost died. I didn't want her to freak out and be scared. And so I started drinking more. You know, I just put my mind, I was at work. And when I came home, it was like, I'm going to have wine. I'm going to go to sleep and just do it all over again. I wasn't addressing any of the real issues that I was suffering from and going through because I was scared. I didn't feel like there was anybody at my agency that I trusted enough that I could confide in and talk about how I was feeling and what I was going through. I just didn't. And that's sad when you think about that. You know, we, we talk about our brothers and sisters that will run into an active shooter situation or go to the most dangerous scenario you can think of on the job and we have each other's backs. But why couldn't I get the courage and the strength to talk to anybody? I just couldn't. I was not connected with them on that level. It, it was almost like so superficial. You know, it was work, but they didn't know me and I really didn't know them. And this lawsuit just drug on for years. We ended up going to court almost four years later in federal court. I was defendant. My marriage absolutely fell apart. Got a divorce. I started having health issues. I started getting repeated skin cancer, which I truly think was as a result of all the stress I was going through. My stepfather, my hero, got diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. He died at the age of 58 in the middle of all this. And I felt like I had nothing. I felt like I was on an island by myself. I started putting myself in dangerous situations at work on purpose, hoping that I died in duty, hoping I didn't come home. You know, I was never going to kill myself, you know, by hanging myself or shooting myself. But what if I was on a traffic stop and I happened to step back into traffic? Nobody's going to know anything about that. What if I rush into that disturbance in progress without cover when I know I shouldn't? What about the call I actually went to with another guy with knives where I almost shot him? I just got to the point where I didn't care. I didn't want to be here anymore. And what it took was about a month and a half after my federal trial ended, I thought things were going to get better after the trial. I thought I, I kind of told myself that, you know, this trial, it's looming over my head. Once we get through this, everything's magically going to get better. All my problems are going to go away. And the polar opposite happened. I was sitting there for two weeks listening to these crazy expert witnesses calling us cold-blooded killers. I was seeing the same face in the courtroom as the man that tried to kill me. He has an identical twin brother who is literally feet away from me in the courtroom. This face that I couldn't get out of my nightmares for years that I still have nightmares about. And then after that, it just really started spiraling. About a week after Thanksgiving that same year, now we're talking about 2016, I was on duty, day shift patrol sergeant, just getting ready to go home. And I hear a call come out of a suicide in progress. It turns out it's my best friend, Vietnam veteran, 35-year reserve police officer with my department, my partner, my best friend. He tried to kill himself when I was on duty. I saw him right when they rushed him into the ER, blood everywhere, in and out of consciousness. I had, I had 
five seconds to speak with him before they rushed him off to emergency surgery. And I told him it was going to be okay, but I honestly didn't think he was going to survive. I didn't think he was going to make it, but thank God he did. And he is the reason why I'm here today. About a month after that, I finally got the courage and the strength to raise my hand and ask for help. He saved my life. Absolutely saved my life. Well, let me ask you this first. I mean, that's such a, you know, a powerful series of events and, you know, it mirrors so many of the spiral downwards that people have told me, you know, in their own personal stories. But with your friend first, obviously he was able to, to help you. What was it that pulled him? Cause I, from what I understand, he, he, t- he was slicing his own wrist. Is that right? He slashed both wrists. He stabbed himself in the torso five or six times. He overdosed on multiple prescription medications. I mean, I I can't tell you the guilt and the shame that I have because I didn't realize the suffering of what he was going through. I didn't realize the depths of his darkness. I had no idea. I was oblivious to it. And when I saw the effect that that had on his friends and his family, more importantly, the effect it had on me, I knew I couldn't do that to my daughter. There was no way I was going to put my daughter or my mother or my brothers through any of that. There's no way. And so I made the conscious decision. I wasn't going to do that. I was going to get help. And thank God I did. So what did, what did your help look like? What was the first step? You know, what did you find started to work for you personally? I was truly blessed. I have to tell you, I, I have a friend who was in my shooting and she told me about this therapist that she had seen and highly recommended her. And so um, about a month after asking for help, I was actually able to see her. Initially, I had to go through my agency. I went through the contracted therapist with the agency. I was taken off work by my own choice. And I got connected with this phenomenal therapist who is also works with the West Coast post-trauma retreat. I remember the first day I met her and she shared a deep, deep personal experience with me, one that I can't share on this interview, but that I can tell you immediately built trust it just immediately when she opened up and told me what she told me, I knew a hundred percent I could trust her with my life. And she is the one that got me on the path. She told me about West coast post-trauma retreat. She told me about these first responder support meetings that I had never heard of that are all over the country. They're all over here in the Bay area. They're hour long discussion meetings They have them all throughout the week. They're open to any first responder, whether you're former or current. It's confidential. And that's where I started to see these firefighters, paramedics, dispatchers, police officers that I'd never known before. I didn't work with. And they were opening up in a room full of people sharing these deep, dark personal experiences. And that's where I learned I wasn't alone. I learned that the feelings I had and the experiences I was going through, so many other people were going through the same. I wasn't special. We were all going through the same. We've all been exposed to so much trauma, so much darkness. And the simple fact is we're human. And that's why we have to share the fact 
that this trauma takes a toll. We have to share our feelings. We have to share our emotions. We have to talk about this stuff. We just keep it bottled up and bottled up until it explodes and it's too late. And so by seeing her, by going to these meetings, going to the West Coast post-trauma retreat, I formed real friendships, real brothers and sisters that to this day I can just fully open up to at any time and know they have my back to the fullest. That's what makes the difference is knowing you're not alone. Well, I think that's the thing that's, you know, reoccurring as well is I don't think we intend to, but we must be really fucking good at poker face because over and over and over again, a common theme is I thought everyone else was just fine. And I know, you know, again, I'm so lucky to have heard over 400, you know, stories now, some not purely mental health, but you know, different perspectives. And it's the same thing. Once someone says I'm hurting and they, and they, you know, speak publicly, their department, people come out from all over the, you know, all over the place and say, Hey, you know, how did you, how did you get through that? I've been going through this too. And you realize that everyone else is fine is, is a complete facade. Like you said, how can you do this profession or any of the associated professions and not be affected by it? The, the, the converse is true. You know, the, the, if you think that you're impervious to the trauma that we see, the shift, you know, the, the sleep deprivation, some of these other areas, the, the, the childhood trauma, like I mentioned, and that you're this kind of, you know, granite faced superhero, then you're fucking fooling yourself. You're a human being. So you have to expect to be affected and start, you know, like you said, create an environment that you can talk, whether it's to your peers, whether it's to a counselor. But the moment you think that you're Superman, you're setting yourself up for a very, very dark journey. Exactly. And the sad thing is, and it's it's by necessity, but that mindset starts in training. It starts in the police academy and it's reinforced in the field training programs. And, you know, in some regards, we do have to feel invincible. We do have to feel like superheroes and we do have to go into the most dangerous situations and take charge and bring order and calm to absolute disorder and chaos. We have to do that. But at the same time, once things have slowed down and things are safe and we can, we need to talk about those things. You know, we do have to talk about it. We can't talk about it in the middle of the incident we have to get the job done. I mean, we are the line between evil and chaos. We are the protectors. We are the ones when you call 911, we're there on your worst day. That's a fact and that's not going to change. But like you said, we are human and it takes a toll. It takes a toll every single day. And most of the public doesn't realize the volume of things that we're exposed to, that we hear, that we see, that we experience. Hundreds and hundreds of traumatic incidents in a career. Whereas the normal person listening who is not a first responder, who is not a military member, who's not a veteran, they may have one or two traumatic incidents in a lifetime. We have hundreds and hundreds in a career. And that's where the awareness and the education needs to come in. We need to educate the public. We need to educate our family members. We need to educate ourselves. We're human. Now, just as a, as a side note, again, trying to understand the psychology, 
when the two, you know, the couple in that apartment testified that this young man in his, you know, psychotic state was trying to kill them. Obviously, he came at you. What was, what was being thrown at you? How, how were you and your fellow officers being blamed when it seemed to be a pretty, you know, clear cut case of, you know, a, a, a violent assailant that had to be neutralized? You know, the couple, they didn't blame us for anything. I mean, they verified the fact that we saved their life. They verified the fact that this young man, something happened to him that night. They'd never seen him act like this. To this day, they don't know what happened to him. And the family doesn't know. I don't know. And I think that's I think that's why this whole lawsuit honestly came about is because the family just wanted answers. And I get that. I understand that as a as a parent, as a father, and I so feel for his family. I feel for his father. You know, throughout this process, I just wanted to talk to the father and let him know that we didn't want to do this, that we had no choice. And, you know, to go into what these crazy expert witnesses were saying, it was absolutely ludicrous. I mean, you mentioned from planting evidence to making up the whole scenario, to him not being armed. I mean, just absolutely unbelievable. You know, what I didn't talk about is that before this couple called 911, what had happened was this young man and the couple, they were in this condo and it was, everything was fine. They were hanging out. Nothing happened. The couple went up to their room the boyfriend was playing video games. The girlfriend fell asleep on him and he was playing video games for hours. They don't know what happens to this other guy, the roommate. And then out of the blue, like three in the morning, he comes into their bedroom, hops on the bed and starts trying to choke the guy to death. And both the man and the woman, the couple, they said same thing. He had this look they'd never seen before. They were trying to talk to him. He had no response. They were saying his name. He was not reacting. This couple, thank God, I don't know how, because both these guys were wrestlers, were able to get him off him. They got him downstairs. They got him outside the condo. They locked the door, ran upstairs, and called 911. That's when the guy broke through the window grabbed a butcher knife out of the kitchen and ran straight up towards the bedroom door and was stabbing through the door trying to get to them. See, and that's why it's so important that we paint the picture. So to me, that screams mental illness. And then the people say, oh, was it drugs? Okay, well, that's still mental illness. You know, drugs are used to fill a void. So we're still looking at a mental illness issue. So these are symptoms. This is a ripple effect, a domino effect of some sort of mental health crisis. And so even though I'm not saying this is an easy fix, the root of so many issues that we see seems to be mental illness. And there are, there are definitely facets to that, whether it's, you know, parenting, whether it's, again, like I said, protecting our children from predators, all these, these elements. But the, the, as long as we ignore that, then we just end up with this, you know, piling this Jenga style, um, uh, you know, response to these underlying issues so you know what's sad is you have to carry that the rest of your life so do the men and women that you work with so does that young couple so does the the young man's family and he doesn't get to live anymore so you know there's it's nothing but victims everywhere 
And that's what's so sad is then when, when the focus is put on you and it's a blame for you. No, there has to be ownership of his actions at that moment. And then you've got to reverse engineer to what took him to that point and address that as well. But as long as we say, you know, evil cop kills innocent, unarmed, whatever, in, in cases where that isn't the case, of course, when it is, then that's a whole different story. Then we're negating the root, the core of why these people get to that point. Yes, there was a psychotic person in the middle of the road swinging a knife. How did that, how did that 28 year old, 48 year old, 60 year Vietnam vet get to that point? That is what we really need to be addressing, not blaming the cop that was forced to kill him at that moment in time. Well, and here's the deal with this guy. There is no history of mental illness, none whatsoever. I mean, nothing. And he did have drug use. You know, we don't know if it was drug induced psychosis. We don't know if it was a mental break. I mean, even years later with all the evidence, all the research, all the lab work, you know, the bottom line is we don't know, but we do know something happened to him that night yeah but my thing is this that no one knew he had a you know what i mean there's difference like you said you thought all your friends in the police department were fine they weren't your friend wasn't so thinking there's no mental illness and knowing i think are two different things as well he may have been harboring something that happened to him that no one knew about yeah absolutely we we just don't know and unfortunately you know we'll never know and that's what makes it so difficult for me is that you know i have to live the rest of my life not knowing. And so does his family and so does his friends. And, and that's what makes it so difficult is we, you know, as humans, we want answers, right? We want to know, we want to know why did this happen? Why did that happen? And unfortunately we're never going to know why this happened. No, it's heartbreaking. Well, just kind of adding on to that. So another thing I talk about a lot and actually I'm having a, a firefighter coming on this evening, we're going to be discussing this kind of similar issue is a compounding effect to some of the struggles that our men and women have is organizational stress. There is a spectrum. You know, there are some incredible departments, like you said, with, with true brotherhood and sisterhood that's fostered in, a, in an environment where people can reach out, where they feel comfortable talking. And then you have the other side where it, you know, it's just the polar opposite. You know, it's, it's a very toxic, caustic environment. But what I see is organizational stress compounds issues that are already there. So for you personally, you know, after after this incident and then, you know, the the following years, did you feel like you had, you know, uh, support from your department? Did you feel like it added to the stress? What was your personal experience? You know, initially my agency I think was very supportive and they got me the resources that I need. Um, you know, my whole plan was to get better and go back to work. I mean, you have to imagine that for me since I was a young kid, this is what I wanted to do. It was a calling. This wasn't some just job that I found on, you know, on Craigslist and said, oh, let me go check this out. I mean, this was my life. This was my purpose. And so my goal was to do everything I could do to get better and go back to work. And I did that. And I was proud of the work I was doing. But a couple months into my recovery process, and I don't say the whole agency here. I mean, this really comes down to one or two individuals, but unfortunately they were in key powerful positions within my agency. And one in particular immediately tried to talk me into retiring when my whole goal was to come back to work. You know, he was like, well, we could, we can make a deal. We could work something out here where if you agree to retire, it's like, are you not hearing me? 
Are you not listening to everything I'm doing to try to come back and to get better? Like that was my goal. And there was a series of things like that that kept happening in my recovery process. And I finally got to the point where I had to hire a work comp attorney and I didn't want to do that. I mean, I waited eight months, but they backed me in a corner and they started just turning their back on me. And when I finally got the strength and the courage to say, you know what? I do need to retire. I can't do this job anymore. Then my agency decided to open up an internal investigation on me for something that supposedly happened a year and a half earlier. And this put my entire pension, retirement, everything I had into jeopardy. And it questioned my integrity, which is my everything. And again, I almost got pushed over the edge because of that. Because I'm like, you know what? Here I am. I've done everything I can do. And now you're now you're trying to take it all away from me to where I can't even live. I can't tell you the kind of betrayal that is. And to this day, you know, I'm working on it, but I have so much anger and so much resentment about that because I gave my all every single day, day in and day out for that place and put my life on the line every single day without question. And when that happened, I had to hire another lawyer and then I pushed it out months and months and months till I could finally retire. So when it comes down to it, that administrative support or betrayal in my case makes an absolute critical difference. And I think that that's what pushes most officers over the edge. You know, I, I've talked to so many people, you know, that are suffering and suffering and, and finally they get help or they want to get help. And then the agency turns their back on them. Well, it's just so heartbreaking. I know this year COVID has, has killed more officers, I think, than anything else. And I think that's, again, due to the, the shift work. And I talk about this a lot. We'll see deprivation does to the you know, the body, the immune system. But prior to that, I know that we were losing about twice as many responders to suicide than any of the other line of duty deaths. So, I mean, there is a huge, uh, probably pandemic, use that word, of you know, exactly what you're talking about. And the more of these elements we can address, the childhood trauma, the sleep deprivation, the, you know, the organizational stress, obviously the things we see are definitely a part of that as well. And the things that we have to do, like the thing in the fire service, we don't have to take a life. We're very fortunate. Military and law enforcement, you know, you might or do. So understanding those and understanding how detrimental it is to treat are men and women that have done everything right up to that point, the way that some of these men and women are, and obviously yourself included, I wish people could understand that might actually contribute to their death certificate. And we have to educate people in the fact that if we don't support them, you know, you're, what kind of message are you sending to that person and to everyone else in your department? Like, hey, by the way, if you fuck up, we're going to throw you under a bus. And the thing is, the numbers are greatly underreported. They're getting better. But I, this year alone, what's been reported to Blue Help is for the month of January alone, we've had 16 suicides. Last year was 173, and the year before that was 239. But I already personally know five suicides, fire, and law enforcement that have happened here in Northern California that haven't been reported. And that's the scary part is what are the real numbers? Because we don't know the real numbers. But the facts are, take COVID away, year over year over year, 
The fact is that as, and I say this for all first responders, we are much more likely to die by our own hands than the hands of another. That is a fact. Yeah, well, even, did you know that the uh, the gun violence statistics, that the more people die from firearms of their own hand than, than you know, are murders? So that's a lesser known statistic too. Absolutely. So, all right, well then, another element that I think people struggle with is is transitioning out, whether it's, you know, basically half forced like yourself whether it's through injury whether it's through ptsd retirement or even promotional away from your your crew to you know an office or a desk job what was that transition like you know knowing that you were basically having to walk away from that career you dreamed of since you were eight years old it wasn't easy um one thing that really helped is i got really involved with the west coast post-trauma retreat and i became a peer volunteer And so what that allowed me to do was to shift my focus again on helping other people because, you know, as first responders, that's what we want to do is we want to be caretakers. We want to help other people. We want to give back. And so I found another way to do that. And it took some time. I mean, it took two and a half years of recovery to get to the point to where I could feel comfortable truly talking about my experience and more importantly about the mistakes that I made. And I owe that to a good friend. His name's Danny Bird. He's a former law enforcement officer here in Northern California. And this guy harassed me for like a year and wanted me to do an interview with him. And I'd never thought about it, never thought about speaking about this publicly. I mean, other than at West Coast post-trauma retreat or at my peer support meetings, But finally, he got me to commit. And when he did that, and we did a video interview about a year and a half ago, and he put that out there for the world to see, I realized that good, bad, ugly, and different, my my stuff was out there, and there's nothing I could do about it. And if people wanted to judge me, they can go ahead and judge me. But what I found was that people started reaching out to me. They started sharing their personal stories. They started telling me about how something I said resonated with them. And the messages, I mean, that I've gotten of people that have actually gotten help because they heard one of my interviews, that has made everything worth it. That has given me purpose. That is why I'm here today is to let people know they aren't alone. You know, I'm fully retired. I'm not a law enforcement officer. I never will be again. I retired on PTSD. That's why I retired. I'm giving back now and I'm going to help others to know you're not alone and there is help. And more importantly, there is hope. Well, I think that's such an important, you know, philosophy for people to understand. You know, as you said, we signed up for these professions that we're in because we want to make a difference. So if you find yourself out of the uniform for whatever reason, good reason, bad reason, I think staying true to that mission, but wearing a different uniform or you know, in a different context, I think is so important because we want to help and you can help through a nonprofit. You can help by being a peer support counselor. You can help in so many different ways. And sometimes, in, like I found with this project, you can actually be a force multiplier. You can help more people by reframing what you're doing. You and I could only really affect, you know, a handful of people on each call, but by you know reaching out and helping a law enforcement officer, a firefighter, a doctor, the ripple effect of how many people they're going to be able to help now they're better again is huge. So I think that's such an important philosophy. 
It is. And, you know, I'm sure you've seen this, but oftentimes first responders, they don't realize how messed up they are until after they retire. And the reason why is because they're operational and their life is their work and that's their identity. And, you know, we really have to change that. We have to get away from just work. We have to get in touch with our families. We have to be present with our families. We have to focus on other things in life. Because if everything we have is that job and that identity and that uniform, if you get that taken away, what else do you have? And that's why it's so important to be present. You know, being present, it's not about physically being there. It's about really being there for your family and for your loved ones and being aware of what's going on in life around you. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned that you went through Save a Warrior. So you know, what what led you that path? And then tell me about your experience. So Save a Warrior, I actually first learned about that through some people that went through the West Coast post-trauma retreat. They actually went through both programs. And I started having some discussions with them. And they really just told me like, hey, you really need to go to this program. Like you really need to check it out. And I, honestly, at first I was like, I don't need this. I'm doing good. You know, I'm in my recovery. I'm doing, I'm doing talks. I'm doing public speaking. Like I'm good to go. Right. And I started researching the program. And one thing that I really liked was that, you know, West coast post-trauma retreat is not open to active military or, or veterans unless you're a first responder as well. And what I liked about Save a Warrior is that it's open to active military, to veterans, to current first responders and former first responders. And so I honestly went through it with the intention of, you know, I'll get something out of it. I'll go through the program. I'll experience it. And when I do my talks, I can speak to it personally and I can help other people and steer them towards a resource, one that I've been to, not just read about. And I didn't realize that it was actually going to be a game changer, a life changer for me. I remember when we got down there and the first thing they said was, we're not here to hear about anybody's street stories or war stories. That's not why we're here. We're not going to talk about that. And I was like, wow, wait a minute. And, you know, I just at this time was dealing with my father and everything that was going on with him. And I just, I leaned fully into it and I realized that I did need it. And this was the right time for me to go. It was absolutely the right time. And, you know, what I realized was that I had this fear of abandonment, which was caused by my father and was later exacerbated by my own agency when they abandoned me. And I didn't realize the effect that that was having on me. And so by acknowledging that and realizing where that came from, but more importantly, to change my perspective on my father and what he went through and to see that he was human and that he was dealing with his own things it literally just lifted this huge weight off my shoulders and it was the last piece I feel that I needed and I didn't even realize I needed it. And if anybody's listening to this and you, you look up Save a Warrior and you go, yeah, I don't think so. That's not for me. I'm telling you, you're wrong. We get into this profession as first responders for a reason. And like we first talked about in the beginning of this interview, whether it's extreme or whether it's just, you know, something that you feel is normal, whether it be a divorce or an emotionally distant parent, or maybe it's extreme. Maybe it's 
a drug addict parent or an alcoholic or physically abusive or sexually abusive, this program will save your life. And the best part about it is it's free. There's absolutely no cost for you to go through Save a Warrior. It's 100% funded by donations. Yeah, it's incredible. Like I said, I had Jake on the show, one of my friends from Anaheim, uh, Matty Fiorenza. He, when we first started talking um, about four and a half years ago, he was absolutely deep in crisis. And then, you know, he called me one day, sounded like a Disney movie. I'm like, what the fuck has happened to him? <laughs> and he's, he's just so enthused. I'm like, oh my God. And then so I had Jake on and I've had, um, you know, some other people on that have been through it. And then recently, episode 408 for everyone listening, I had Matt. And then another friend of mine, Jared, and Jared, we did we did two parts. Matt and Jared sat down. Um, Jared was basically still going through it, you know, through his crisis. And then the second part of that interview was a few weeks later where Jared had gone through Save a Warrior. And I had nothing but amazing feedback on that. So if you want to hear more about it and listen firsthand to someone that had just gone through, that's another great episode of people to listen to. You know, the fact that you mentioned Maddie, he was my shepherd when I went through Save a Warrior, and that's how I met him. And he is an amazing man. And when he told his story, it just absolutely resonated with me. And I just, he speaks from the heart, and he is fully open. And and Maddie is an amazing, amazing man. I mean, I, I got to tell you, and I wouldn't have met him had it not been for Save a Warrior. And, and that's what I'm talking about. He's giving back. He's going back to save a warrior and being a shepherd and helping other people and sharing his story. And that's what this is all about is giving back. You know, once you're in that good place and once you've gone through your recovery, share it, share how you got there. Don't keep it to yourself. Absolutely. And it's funny because the core of doing that, the core of giving back, the altruism is at the core of why we became a police officer or a firefighter. You know, so it's literally reconnecting with the very thing that drove you to do this profession in the first place. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more on that statement. Beautiful. Well, I think that's a perfect place to transition to some closing questions. So the first one I love to ask people, is there a book that you love to recommend? And it can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. Well, I'm currently working on my first book, so I don't know if that would be appropriate, but um, I would definitely recommend the book that I'm currently writing with Dr. Shauna Springer. Um, she's actually the author of Warrior, which I do highly recommend. And Dr. Shauna Springer, also known as Doc Springer, she's a psychologist and she's worked with military combat veterans for most of her career. And she is absolutely amazing, doing amazing things. And we're currently working together, uh, writing my first book, but I believe it's her third or fourth book. And it's going to be called Fighting the Darkness, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. And we're hoping to have that published within six or seven months. Perfect. Well, let me know. I'll, I'll share it when it's out. Now, is Dr. Springer one of the people that helped you on your recovery personally? Well, actually, when I met her, uh, we connected before I went to Save a Warrior. And when we connected, it was more or less like networking and learning from each other. And we actually just formed a friendship. And so we just really got to know each other and got to know the work that we're both doing. And what we realized is that together, we can do so much more, you know, together. Um, having clinicians work with actual peers or first responders, 
that's what makes the difference. It's about culturally competent therapists and clinicians. That is key to this whole thing. 100%. I couldn't agree more. The number of horror stories I've heard, especially EAP ones, where it's almost made it worse. It's almost driven someone to suicide because the counselor was in tears or, you know, they got sent to a marriage counselor instead of, a, you know, a, um, you know, a trauma counselor. Uh, it's, it's crazy. But yeah, having a counselor when you walk in, they understand who you are. They understand what you do. I think is imperative for our men and women. It's a must. Absolutely. All right. Well, then that's the book then. So what about a, a movie and or a documentary that you love? That's a tough one. I'm I'm actually a huge, huge movie buff. Um, now, when you're asking me this, are you asking about as far as recovery or just in general? No, in general. And it can be more than one if you have a handful. You know, honestly, I'm a huge military guy and um, Black Hawk Down and Platoon are probably two of my favorite movies. Um, they just are extremely powerful. They resonate. Um, I think more importantly, because my best friend is a Vietnam veteran, um, you know, I really have immersed myself in that culture, in that time frame. I actually went to Vietnam uh, last year, and I'm just really trying to learn more about the things that he experienced and that he went through. Brilliant. Well, I had um, uh, Mike Durant on the show from Black Hole Down. He was the pilot that was captured, and Matt Eversman, he's been on, and then uh, Captain Dale Dye, who did the military training for Pl Platoon, he's been on the show too. So those are two very powerful movies I'm connected to that, I mean, incredible stories, both of them. Absolutely. All right. Well, then speaking of that, so is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? I have a few, but uh, first and foremost, I would say Roger Ruggi. And he is a retired police officer. He's actually a also master post instructor and he's a resiliency expert. And he, I consider him my mentor. I mean, he's my friend, but he's absolutely my mentor. And he does a show called Hero Talk uh, podcast. Um, and, you know, he does have the best radio voice that you will ever hear, guaranteed. Um, and I, I joke about that. But this man's heart, this man's message, he truly gets it. He truly cares about people. And he is just an amazing person. And I highly, highly recommend Roger Ruggi. Beautiful. That's lucky because you, when I looked you up to listen to, you know, an interview that you done with someone else, it was his that I came across and I thought he was a great interviewer as well. So I would definitely reach out to him. Outstanding. Brilliant. All right. Well, then last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you. What do you do to decompress? First and foremost, exercise. Um, I go to the gym every single day, usually for two hours. Um, the days that I can't go to the gym, I go hiking. And I go hiking just about every single weekend. So for me, physical activity and being out in nature are absolutely key. And without those things, I would not be where I'm at today. Beautiful. It's funny that the common denominators happen over and over again. Exercise, nature, family, and mindful practice seem to you know be the, the four ones that come over and over. All right. Well, then the last question, if people want to learn more about you, reach out to you, where are the best places online to find you? So there's a few um, on LinkedIn, which is probably my biggest platform. Um, I'm on there every single day and people can send me a message. Um, I also am part of a couple Facebook pages. Uh, the first one is called First Responders First. 
And we also have an Instagram page with the same name. And then we have a brand new page, which I am doing with Dr. Shauna Springer and also Jennifer Tracy, who is also another well-known speaker and author. And it's called Redefine Your Mission. And Redefine Your Mission is also available on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. Beautiful. All right. Well, Michael, I just want to say thank you so much. I mean, everyone that comes on here and that has a, you know, a powerful story to tell, I always say the same thing. I appreciate your courage, you know, and transparency of telling it. And I also acknowledge the fact that it must be hard, you know, when, when you're recounting this over and over again. But I know that you know, I know firsthand because I see the messages. I know how this is going to impact people. I know it's going to resonate with them. And it's just another, another chink in the armor of this, you know, facade that everyone's doing okay. The more storytelling we hear, the more people of all backgrounds that say, Hey, this, this affected me. The more we get rid of that stigma and that facade and we get people acting like humans towards each other again. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. It's my pleasure and my honor. Thank you. 